All right, we're in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, so if you'd open there or navigate there to chapter 2, please. Our text this morning is chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. The topic, Jesus tells the church at Ephesus that despite all their good works, they have left their first love for him. The title of our message, You've Left That First Love Feeling. Let's have a word of prayer. Only a few of you remember the Righteous Brothers. I, uh, I tweeted that. Well, every week, this is edited out. But anyway, uh, there's a bunch of pastors, and uh, on Twitter, we send a hashtag text check. We talk about each other's messages and stuff. And so I always put my title. And uh, Terry Michaels from Calvary Chapel in Austin, Texas, who's a friend of mine, he, he wrote back, and he goes, that's righteous, brother. And uh, so anyway... I thought, thank you, Terry, you're, you're entering in, so. All right, let's have a word of prayer now. Father, thanks for our uh, time in your word. We anticipate hearing from you, uh, and we want to do what you recommend to this church, and that is have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to us individually and corporately. Do those things, Lord, that are pleasing in your sight. Reveal your love for us so that we might be inspired to love you in return and to love others. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name and those who greet said, amen. 30 years, congratulations, church at Ephesus. At the time of the writing of the revelation of Jesus Christ, they had been a vibrant evangelical church for 30 years. Do you suppose they might have been having a special anniversary service with the reading of the personal letter from Jesus Christ as the centerpiece of their celebration? If so... It all started to go wrong uh, four verses in at nevertheless. Look at verse four. Nevertheless, I have this against you that you have left your first love. That'll bring you down in a hurry. 30 years. Congratulations, Calvary Hanford. This year, we have been a vibrant evangelical church for 30 years. Want to celebrate? I do, but we might want to be sure that there is no nevertheless for us on our Lord's lips. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, good works can conceal your left love. And number two, first works always affirm your first love. Let's look at verses one through four where we see good works concealing our love. Now, this is the first of the letters Jesus dictated to the seven churches mentioned in chapter one. We should say a few things about these letters in general before we get into the situation unique to Ephesus. These seven churches were all in modern Turkey. If you started at Ephesus and visited all the rest, they'd be in the geographical order we encounter them in these two chapters, about 30 to 50 miles apart. There is a similarity in the structure of the letters. Each opens with a greeting to the individual church. Each presents the Lord Jesus in a description borrowed from chapter one that is peculiarly fitting for that particular church. And each describes his knowledge of the church's works introduced by the words, I know. Words of commendation are addressed to all churches except Laodicea. Words of reproof are addressed to all except Smyrna and Philadelphia. To each, a special exhortation is given to hear what the Spirit is saying, and in each, a special promise is included for the overcomer. One commentator has assigned the following titles expressing the dominant features addressed in each letter, 
Ephesus is the loveless church. Smyrna is the persecuted church. Pergamos is the over-tolerant church. Thyatira is the compromising church. Sardis is the sleeping church. Philadelphia, the church with opportunity. And Laodicea, the complacent church. The letters have four levels of application. They had a provincial application. These seven were actual churches existing in John's day, which Jesus wrote to for their correction or their commendation. Second, the letters always have a present application. At the end of each letter is the exhortation to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Although each letter is written to a church, each is also written to all the churches throughout the church age. These seven were representative of characteristics and conditions that might exist in any local church or churches in any century. Third, the letters always have a personal application to every Christian. They each say, he that hath an ear to hear, talking to individual believers in any church in any era. I was watching a message this week on this passage, and the pastor said, I want everybody to reach up and touch their ears. He says, if you have an ear, then this letter was written to you. And then fourthly, the letters have a prophetic application. These seven, taken in the order Jesus put them, describe successive periods of church history. With hindsight, we can see that they lay out the entire history of the Western church from the apostolic church of the first century right through the apostate church of the last days. And that brings us to the first century church at Ephesus and to this letter proper. And so let's get into it in verse 1. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, these things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Now we established last week that the angel, which is a translation of the word messenger, of each church was the person who read the letter aloud to the congregation. It was most likely the pastor of the church. The church at Ephesus had been founded by the Apostle Paul on his third missionary journey. He remained in Ephesus as its pastor for three years. Probably during this period, the other six churches of the Revelation were founded, both by missionaries who were sent out from Ephesus and by the influence of converts returning to their homes. After Paul left, we know that Timothy pastored in Ephesus for a time, and church history says that the apostle John did also. So these guys had some really heavy-duty uh, right-on pastors. In chapter 1, John saw Jesus in the midst of seven golden lampstands holding the seven stars in his right hand. This was interpreted for us at the end of chapter 1. The lampstands were the seven churches, and the stars were the pastors, the angels of the seven churches. In each of the seven letters, as I mentioned, Jesus borrows a different attribute from his description in chapter 1 in his opening comments. The particular attribute Jesus chooses always has a direct bearing on his correction or his commendation for each church. So he uh, describes himself, and then later in the letter, you find that that description is the solution or part of the solution for their problem. In the case of Ephesus, Jesus described himself as tending the lampstands of the churches because he was going to warn Ephesus that if they did not repent, he would remove their lampstand. 
In our mythical 30-year anniversary celebration, Jesus began by commending them for their many good works. And so we can imagine hearing this for the first time as the gathered church at Ephesus, this letter being read by their beloved pastor and them listening to the words of Jesus. Somebody said this was the last audible Jesus gave. These were his last words to the church on earth that were spoken by him uh, that are in the scripture. And so very important words. And in verse two, he says, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. You've tested those who say they are apostles and are not. You have found them liars. And the Ephesian believers had good works in overabundance. Their good works were characterized by labor and by patience. Labor describes strenuous, exhausting work, not in a negative way, but in the way that you feel when although you're exhausted, it was totally worth it because you enjoyed every minute of it and it accomplished something. They also had patience as they worked. Read about the church at Ephesus in Acts 19 and you'll see that the believers faced fierce local opposition from non-believers. They labored on for the Lord nevertheless. Jesus noted that you cannot bear those who are evil. He might be referring to their willingness to confront sin in their midst and to discipline professing believers for their own good, but also to maintain the purity of the witness of the church. In one of the most emotional moments of the book of Acts, Paul met with the elders from Ephesus to warn them that false teachers were going to try to infiltrate the church to destroy the church with their false teachings to destroy it from within. The Ephesians took this seriously and would not tolerate these false apostles calling them liars. This is not usually a good debating technique. What do you have to say to that? You're a liar. Uh, but when it comes to the truth, I mean, you know, it, it, people can be led astray to a Christless eternity. We don't have time always to be kind to false teachers who are spreading false teaching. We need to let people know, hey, that is a lie, and that is a liar. Verse 3, you've persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. They persevered which led to even greater patience because tribulation works patience. And, and so they, you know, rather than uh, draw back or backslide or anything, they just kept on and it, uh, their troubles grew and their patience grew as well. Uh, and they did not become weary in that well-doing. They did it all with pure motives because Jesus, who alone knows men's hearts, said it was for my name's sake. The Ephesians weren't looking to make a name for themselves. They were only looking to lift up the name of Jesus. And so everything they were doing up to here was good. It was right. It was necessary. It's what every church needs to be about. And Jesus said you were even doing it with the right motives. Man, this is it. Cut the cake. <laughs> they must have been feeling pretty good. Then it happened. Verse 4. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Did they gasp? Did someone say, what? Did some begin to weep? Were there those who disagreed or who immediately thought of others that were guilty of this? But certainly, it's not true of me. Commentators struggle trying to define first love. I've struggled over the years 
trying to define it. Is it a feeling? Is it more than a feeling? Is it our love for Jesus? Is it our love for other believers? Is it both? First love is usually, and not inaccurately, related to the passionate, zealous love of the engagement between ourselves as the bride and Jesus as the bridegroom. The Ephesians would relate to this seeing as Paul had used the bride metaphor in his letter to them. Indeed, the revelation also makes much of the bride and of our wedding feast in the last chapters. When Jesus comes in his second coming, he brings the church with him as his bride for the marriage supper. Now, similar to our human relationships between husband and wife, the initial love of the engagement can cool and need rekindling. One problem, however, with that definition of first love, if that's the only definition, is that we expect it to cool. Our zeal for our spouse, the love of our engagement, gives way to a more constant love. And many times when couples feel like they are kind of not as in love with each other as, as they maybe once were, well, then they'll uh, establish a date night they can go on when the kids aren't sick and when they can afford it. And so that's kind of our mindset. Our mindset is, yeah, there is this amazing engagement love, but of course, no one can stay in that. For example, the example I use sometimes, when I first met Pam, and we were first dating. You've heard this a hundred times, but I like telling the story. Uh, and I'm the angel. So anyway, uh, she lived in Santa Ana. I lived in San Bernardino. I'd get off work at five o'clock and drive down there, and I'd stay there till midnight, one in the morning, two in the morning, three in the morning, there at her house just watching TV. Her mom was there. And... Uh, you know, we would just, and it was hard to leave. I'd get home at four or five in the morning, do the same thing. Just, I ended up in the hospital. I was suffering from exhaustion. It was my first experience with Valium. Uh, and I said, man, I, <laughs> it was also my last experience with Valium. But anyway, not by choice. But anyway, uh, I, we weren't Christian. We weren't Christians then. But I, I, I literally loved her to exhaustion. And so you hear that and you say, well, yeah, you can't do that after you get married. You know, kids come, jobs come, you know, all that kind of stuff. So we expect that love to wane. And so if we decide that first love for Jesus is just that, well, we expect it to wane and we think, okay, Lord, yeah, you got me. I'll get back to my date morning. I'll get back to my devotions. And, you know, I'll, I'll put in my reading time and we'll be back on track. But I think the Lord is talking about something far, far more uh, important. Is there some clue as to what first love might be referring to? Well, I see a clue in the letter itself. It's in Jesus' prescription for overcoming having left your first love. In the very next verse, he will mention a return to first works. And he uses the same description. First is the same word in both cases. Whatever first love is, it produces first works. These must be somehow different from the good works Jesus had commended them for because they were doing good works, but no longer doing their first works. Do we have any idea what these first works were in Ephesus? Well, I think we do because we have the benefit of the book of Acts. And I can summarize a couple of them from the story of the founding of the church and the history of the church in the book of Acts. 
On his approach to Ephesus, before the church was founded by him, the Apostle Paul encountered 12 disciples of John the Baptist. This is all in Acts 19. As Paul spoke to them about the Lord, he realized they had never received the promise of the Holy Spirit coming upon them to empower them for their service. Today we might, in shorthand, say that they were not spirit-filled. Paul baptized them in water, signifying they were saved, signifying that God the Holy Spirit was in them. Then subsequent to their water baptism, and I'll read it to you from Acts 19.6, Paul laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Later in his letter to the Ephesians, Paul would exhort the whole church to go on being continually filled with the Holy Spirit as a renewable experience. And so we see from Paul a little bit of his theology of the Holy Spirit that you need to get saved and the Holy Spirit lives within you, but he also has to come upon you to empower you for service and that you need to go on being filled throughout your Christian walk. And that's very, very important. That's a very important look at what first love might entail. Now, the other notable event in Ephesus, there were some other things that happened, but one notable event was sparked by a failed exorcism by a group of Jews. They were called the Sons of Sceva. They had seen Paul do many miracles, including exorcising demons. When they tried, the demon spoke from inside the person saying, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, who are you? Not a good thing to hear during an exorcism. <laughs> Acts 19, 16, then the man in whom the evil spirit was, uh, was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. This became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified, and many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. The many who believed were Christians who had nevertheless continued in their practice of magic until this episode quite literally put the fear of God in them and they quit compromising with the world. Knowing these things about the believers in Ephesus, we can say that their first works were one, to receive and go on receiving the fullness of God the Holy Spirit and two, to turn to God from idols that they allowed to remain or return in their lives. Good works from right motives, can continue without the power of God the Holy Spirit. Good works as opposed to first works. In fact, good works can conceal the fact that we have left our first love. Many commentators have quoted what I'm going to say next. I don't know who to attribute it to. I first read it in a book by A.W. Tozer, who's always worth reading. He said, concerning the Holy Spirit in the church, he said, if the Holy Spirit were somehow to leave the church or removed from the church, 95% of the activity of that church would usually continue. And what that means is 95% of the activity of the church is in the flesh. Good works for sure, 
We always think of the flesh as being something bad or evil, but in this case, you can have good works in abundance, but not the first work of being dependent upon God the Holy Spirit, led by God the Holy Spirit. Christians can certainly be laboring patiently, persevering, and not growing weary, excuse me, while simultaneously harboring an idol or idols in their lives. You've had this experience. Maybe you're having it now where there's, you know there's something in your life that is not pleasing to God. Maybe it's a habitual sin. Maybe it's something you're trying to get rid of or, or not. Maybe it's something you're harboring. And yet you serve in the church. You come to church. You witness those kinds of things. And, and so it's, it's, it shouldn't be, but it's easy for us to, to love the world and at the same time serve the Lord, even though that doesn't really pan out. Receiving the Holy Spirit, being filled by Him, and keeping yourself from idols, those are first works that affirm your first love. So the questions are, did you receive this baptism of the Holy Spirit when you believed? Have you received fresh fillings of the Holy Spirit since you believed? Uh, Have you ever, like at the end of the service today, we're going to have folks come forward like we always do, When's the last time you had hands laid on you and said, you know, I do want a fresh filling of the Spirit? Is it necessary? No. But after a while, you think, well, nothing's necessary but for me to just sit and take in and take in. Sometimes God wants you to step forward and say, yeah, I really want this, and I want to acknowledge that I want this. And so uh, that's what these 12 disciples of John, Paul said, hey, you need the Holy Spirit. They said, we want this Holy Spirit. We've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So yeah, of course we want him and we want more of him. Are your good works really being done in total dependence upon God? Or do you think that your talents and abilities have anything to do with ministry? Because I'll tell you right now, they do not. If anything, they get in the way of ministry. You have to work hard so that people know that it's not you, not your talent, not your ability. I never want anybody, not that anybody would ever say this, but I never want anybody to leave and say, man, Gene is such a great pastor. He can really put a message together. You could do that and not even be saved. Uh, What I want people to do is say, Jesus was in this place. The Holy Spirit spoke to me. And my favorite times, they're humbling, is when somebody, I'll talk to them after church and they'll tell me about something I said that I didn't say. I say, man, when you, were, when you were there in the book of Hebrews and you hit on 412, that really ministered to me. And I'm like, yeah, I, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> the rest of us were in Revelation today, buddy. <laughs> what about idols? The Ephesians harbored idols but then repented and burned them at great financial loss. Are there idols you've never let go of? Or more probable, are there idols you've added to your life over time? Maybe things you burned or you would have burned in a bonfire years ago, which now holds sway over you. First love is total dependence on Jesus and it's total independence from the love of the world manifesting itself in first works. Now, verses five through seven, first works always affirm your first love. Do you like performance reviews at work? I hate them and I hate giving them. But that's only because they're so subjective and because they come from the human heart, which can be wicked and deceitful. The performance reviews Jesus gives are pure, holy, loving, merciful. But we need to let him speak to us. We need to invite his searching of our hearts. 
Jesus had something against the believers in Ephesus, but the situation was not without immediate remedy. Verse 5, remember therefore where you have fallen, repent, do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Remember, invite you to look back. We look back at Ephesus and we saw those things which once characterized them. A total dependence on the Holy Spirit and a freedom from the things of the world, a lack of love for the world. They had fallen, but they could and should get up. If a greater dependence on God and a greater independence from the world used to be true of you than it is today, then you just need to admit you have fallen. Thank God the fix is easy. Repent, which means to turn around and walk the other way. And I mean that. It's easy. It's the easiest thing to do. It's the hardest thing to do because you have to agree with God. And we like to argue with God instead. We want to say, well, well, God, I'm not that bad. Well, this thing, I'm not that deep into it. I have the liberty to do that. Whatever it might be. It could be a million different things because I don't know what it is for you. But, you know, how often does God really penetrate our heart and you're just stunned and you say, nevertheless, I thought I was really walking with you. I thought I was really on top of my game. Nevertheless, I'm doing this and, and it's offensive to you. Nevertheless, I'm not depending on the spirit. Nevertheless, we need to let God pierce that uh, kind of thing and get deep into our hearts. We need to do what the Beatles said and get back to where we once belonged. Remember that? I, see, the Beatles are spiritual. <laughs> Actually, they're not. But anyway, Jesus warned them that if they did not get on board and repent, he'd remove their lampstand. He wasn't saying anything about individual salvation because he was addressing the church corporately. Removing their lampstand wasn't about salvation. The churches on the earth, remember, are lampstands. They are the only spiritual light in the darkness of a realm whose ruler is the God of this world, Satan. Jesus is the source of oil for our lampstand. He's the one who trims the wick, keeping us burning brightly. Unless we leave our first love, we are then actively quenching his light. If Jesus is providing the spirit so that we can be a testimony to the world and we are walking in the flesh and not the spirit and are in love with things in the world, we are quenching his ability to be the light of the world through us. And he's warning the church at Ephesus and every subsequent church that they would cease to have a testimony of the Lord. They might go on as a church for a long time, but they would no longer have a testimony. Quickly is the Greek word from which we get our word tachometer. It doesn't mean soon. It meant that once he decided to remove their lampstand, it would happen suddenly. A church can go on for a long, long time doing good works, but quenching the light. Don't underestimate the energy of the flesh. Verse six, but this you have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. There are two theories on why they were called the Nicolaitans, or at least two theories, two prominent theories. Some early church fathers believe they were disciples of Nicolaus, who is mentioned in Acts 6-5 as one of the original seven deacons. If that's true, it's a sad commentary on his defection from the faith. There's very little evidence for that other than speculation. Others think this is a description of a basic belief. The compound word means something like over the people 
One possible rendering of the Greek word literally means laity conqueror. We talk about the word laity as, as the, the common people, so people conqueror. What was their false doctrine? Well, because they're mentioned again in the letter to the church at Pergamos in connection with the Old Testament character Balaam, some commentators say they were among those who were casting a stumbling block before the church by upholding the liberty of eating certain things sacrificed to idols as well as committing fornication. Hippolytus, writing in the third century, said that the Nicolaitans followed what's called the Gnostic heresy. Gnosticism believed that the only thing that mattered was your spirit your body, since it was going to be left behind and deteriorate, didn't matter. It was a convenient way for them to say, hey, eat, drink, and be merry. Go with prostitutes, get drunk, get high, do whatever you want, because it doesn't affect your spirit at all, and your spirit's going to go on to be with God. Uh, it's a terrible perversion, really. Others charged that the Nicolaitans were establishing a priesthood over believers, conquering the laity or the people by lording over them. The truth is we don't know for sure, and unless some ancient document is discovered, we will never know, not for sure. The point then Jesus was emphasizing is that the believers at Ephesus would not put up with any false or aberrant teaching. Whatever the Nicolaitans were doing or saying, and it was probably a combination of many things, these guys were on it, and they were not going to put up with it. Why this commendation after his correction? Why not at the beginning? Well, it certainly wasn't just so they wouldn't feel so bad or to lessen the heaviness of what he had just said. Do you ever have something heavy to say to somebody, and then you say it, and then you right away come in behind it and say, but, I, you know, everything's going to be fine. Uh, Jesus isn't that way. So why here? Well, I think it serves as a reminder that uh, reminding first love or returning to first love will only lead to a return to first works that are biblical. Too often a believer will begin to feel the Lord's correction about leaving their first love, but instead of simply remembering, they go searching for something a little more edgy, a little more out there in the Christian realm, as if the experience they had was wrong rather than the problem being in their own heart. And so the idea is that, you know, the Lord busts you and you've left your first love, but you want to blame your church or your discipleship group or your home Bible study or your movement. You think it was their fault because they're waxing cold in their love and I need to go out here and find this more vibrant movement. Uh, and so the Lord's saying, hey, if you're going to return to your first works, make sure they're biblical. Make sure you're not going outside of the realm, uh, listening to some Gnostic or Nicolaitan or somebody like that. Because believe me, there's a lot of stuff out there. And when you're vulnerable thinking, Lord, I want to love you and I want to experience all that you have, that's when the enemy can still come in and say, well, here, these guys over here have something that they've discovered. It's a little bit different, but it's still just enough of the Bible. And so we want to stay biblical. If my oldest grandson is listening to the webcast, he undoubtedly turned to his dad or mom and asked, did Papa just use a bad word? It's the word hate. Did Jesus use a bad word? He said that he hated their deeds. Well, Proverbs 6 outlines seven things the Lord hates, pride, lying, murder, evil plots, those who love evil, false witness, and troublemakers. There are other things God is said to hate, like certain types of divorce, for example, there are things God hates, we should hate them too. In other words, we need to be passionate about what we believe, why we believe it. We need to speak the truth in love, 
but sometimes things are so bad that we need to call people liars and we need to hate uh, what they're doing. Verse 7, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Churches are comprised of people who are all over the spiritual map. There are believers as well as non-believers. There are those believers who are spiritual and those who are carnal. There are agitators, those taken by Satan, taken captive by Satan, coming to do his will by seeking to harm the church and its testimony from within. Everyone is invited to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus ministers his grace by his Spirit, seeking to penetrate the hearts of the hearers with the truth of their relationship to him. The word overcomes could be translated victorious. It's a military word. It reminds us that we are in a war, a fierce spiritual war being waged on this earth by malevolent forces for the souls of men. The book of the revelation of Jesus Christ, it's a war book. Uh, man, when we get to the great tribulation, there is a war going on for the souls of men. This makes our return to first love and first works all the more crucial because eternal life is at stake for those that we are to have a testimony among. Now, in the immediate context of this letter, overcoming would mean being continually renewed with the Holy Spirit and constantly on guard against the love of the world, which is always incompatible with the love of Jesus Christ. He mentions the paradise of God. I don't know if you're ready for this, but we might be fruitarians in eternity. There'll be no more death, and that should include animals, right? But the fruit will be delicious on the tree of life. I don't like fruit now, but I'll bet I will then. <laughs> At the very end of Revelation, once we're in the new creation, all believers will, in fact, partake of the tree of life and its fruit in the midst of the paradise of God. Now, at Woodstock, Crosby, Stills, and Nash sang a Joni Mitchell song. They said, we've got to get ourselves back to the garden. I was thinking about that. We're not going back to the Garden of Eden, and we don't want to. It was cool while it lasted. But I was thinking about this. God would come and visit Adam and Eve once a day in the late afternoon. And, and as cool as that is, that's not enough, is it? In heaven, in paradise, we're looking for the new Jerusalem where we will be in constant, sinless, intimate fellowship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So I don't want to get back to the garden. I want to get ahead to the new Jerusalem where we're with the Lord at all times. Now, it's not inevitable that a church lose its first love, or leave its first love, excuse me. But if it could happen to Ephesus, it can happen anywhere, even here. The Lord says to us, I know. Let's invite him to search our hearts and to tell us individually and then corporately perhaps what he already knows. So in a minute when we go to prayer, we have our little uh, uh, devotional time, our prayer time before the Lord, our, our waiting on the Lord. It's a time to really apply this and say, Lord, you know. You know what's in my heart. Now, I think I know what's in my heart, but I really don't. But the Lord knows. And say, Lord, you know, so search my heart and show me. A whole group of Ephesians turn to God from idols. We can do that too. It, it's not uncommon for Christians to still have idols in their life. We know that. It's just how often do we actually identify one and tear it down and get rid of it? 
today we want to do that. And so let him reveal any idol or idols you are holding on to or that have been reintroduced into your life. If you've been a Christian for a long time, uh, there's a good chance that the world has crept back in to your walk. And we can ask him to be filled afresh with his spirit. Gordon Fee writes, he says, the Apostle Paul does not see life in the spirit as a result of a single experience of the spirit at conversion. Frequently, Paul implies there are further ongoing appropriations of the spirit's empowering. For Paul, life in the spirit begins at conversion. At the same time, that experience is both dynamic and it is renewable. And you see this in the scripture. You see the early church praying and the Holy Spirit coming upon them. You see Paul saying, be constantly filled with the Holy Spirit. In Ephesus, we said, 12 believers let Paul lay his hands on them because they wanted to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We can do that. We can have hands laid on us with prayer for the filling of the Holy Spirit. And as the men come up after our service this morning, I'll stay up here as well. I would invite you to get over your fears and, and uh, your reticence and your hesitancy and come forward and let us pray for you. Let us pray together that the Holy Spirit would come upon us and he would fill us afresh. There's nothing weird about it. It's the normal Christian life. Paul said, yeah, you get saved. The Holy Spirit lives within you. He comes upon you and then he keeps on coming upon you as you seek these renewable experiences. Amen? Amen. Let's go to prayer. Thank you.